have a special guest with us. His name is Dr. June Venser. And if you've been here for any number of years, you'll, you'll remember the name, you'll remember Dr. June. Uh, we, we, we determined that we first met in 1998 before we even moved into this building. And uh, some of you may or may not know it, but Dr. June is actually related to the Gozes, the Castillos, the Bergados, and uh, those are the, I think those are the folks who have been part of this church the longest, and then a number of others. Hi, Glenn. Nice to see you. Um, we uh, we are, are so delighted to have with us, uh, sharing with us this morning, uh, in the book of Ruth, he's carrying on the uh, the series, and I gave him. This is a difficult. This is a difficult one, and, and you did an excellent job in the first service, and I'm so glad you're you're able to carry on doing it. This in the second service gives me a bit of a break. Uh, someone said to me after the first service, "Well, Pastor John, we didn't even miss you this morning." <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, I know that you're going to enjoy this this morning. We pray that God will continue to uh, work. Through you, my dear brother, uh, just, I just want to throw this in here. Dr. June Venser was the uh, director of the, Evangel- the World Evangelical Fellowship uh, for almost 10 years. And so it's really an honor and a privilege for Cross Church to, to have this dear brother with us. So God bless you, dear, dear Dr. June, as you minister to us this morning. It is good to celebrate our freedom. It was purchased at the price of so many who died for it. And I'm glad that in North America we have such freedom. Some years ago I asked Dr. Benjamin Chu from Singapore, the most prosperous nation in Asia. And the prime minister is the highest paid political executive in the world. And I asked him, what is your greatest fear about Singapore? And he said, too much freedom. And think about that. I wonder if in North America we have abused that freedom. We have not used that freedom to glorify God. As a matter of fact, we have become anti-God in many ways. Freedom provided for us the prosperity that we now enjoy. But we are not learning from history either. Max Weber once said, Christianity will spawn prosperity, and prosperity will swallow Christianity. How true is in it? And so we will pray that this freedom will last. But beyond simply freedom is the opportunity to participate in the advancement of the kingdom of God. When the church leaders in the underground church of China was asked the question, are you praying for a change of circumstances because they were under persecution? And the answer was surprisingly different from what we expected. And they said, no, we are not praying for change of circumstances primarily. We are praying that God will give us the courage to persevere in our Christian life. That's amazing, isn't it? It's good to be here with you this morning. 
After my message, my brother-in-law, Arnel, will sing a song that will summarize my message. Well, actually, yesterday we were talking about it, and I said, Arnel, uh, we will have a deal. One, you preach and I sing. Or I preach and you sing. And he decided to sing. So I'm grateful for the partnership this morning as well. A friend of mine asked me the question, June, what is new with you? And I said a lot of things. Physically, I said, I learned that when you grow older, you can brush your teeth in the morning and still whistle or hold your teeth. <laughs> and something happens to your brain and your memory. A man was telling his friend, I just, we just dined in a good restaurant. And the man said, what's the name of the restaurant? He thought for a while, he forgot about the name. And then he asked his friend, what is that flower that you give to the one you love? And he said, Rose. Oh, that's it. And then he shouted to his wife in the kitchen and said, Rose, what's the name of the restaurant? <laughs> and sometimes, you know, when you take a look at it, even your hearing is affected. A patient approached a doctor and said, I think something is wrong in my hearing, and the doctor said, well, I'll take care of that. So he was fitted with a hearing aid, and he said, come back in one month, and let's find out if it works. And after one month, he came back to the doctor, and the doctor said, how was it? Was your family pleased about your hearing aid? Well, he actually, I have not told them about it. I just listened to their conversations. <laughs> As a matter of fact, in one month's time, I changed my will three times already. So be very careful about these things that are changing you and me. I'm so grateful to my family for inviting us to be here and uh, to just reconnect with them after many years. And to my wife, uh, who is here with us also, my partner in ministry, and to Pastor Alan, a dear friend, one of the few intellectual pastors that I admire. And thank you, Alan, for having me preach in your pulpit today. The focus of the sermon is about Ruth, the third chapter. The first two chapters have been preached on already, I would suppose that. And the story of Ruth is fascinating, isn't it? We are told that it is one of the most unrivaled love story in the Old Testament. And as we go through that, you can find in the first chapter some of the most famous passages that have been quoted during marriage ceremonies. Your people will be my people, your God will be my God. Well, where you will be buried, I will be buried too. You know, things like that. We say that during the marriage, and after three years, we start thinking about it. And I hope that uh, your pledges will never change. But then after studying Genesis, I mean, Ruth chapter 3, we will turn to Hebrews chapter 10 toward the last few verses. And uh, the linchpin word would be the word patient. When I look at the text that uh, Pastor Alan sent to me, I said that Pastor Alan was not fair because the text was, is one of the most theologically debated texts all throughout the centuries. And it is my hope that after my message, we will still be friends. I will take a look at the message today in terms of an unusual courtship, 
the unusual providence of God and the unusual relevance of the text for our lives today. First, the unusual courtship or proposal. You know the story, if you read chapter 3, that Naomi at the time was interested that Ruth, his daughter, her daughter, would find a home. The other translation of that word home is rest. And you have to question, what does it really mean, rest? And I think the reason for that is because Ruth was a very beautiful widow. There were other young men who were probably chasing after her. And she wanted her daughter to have rest from these men who were chasing her. So she wanted her to get married. But the process of finding a husband for her is outlined in a way that both the emotion and the law of God are intertwined together. And so at the end of the harvest, Naomi knew what would happen. The young laborers of the field of Boaz will be guarding the grain where they were gathered. And they, were ha- they will have their own merriment. Perhaps some of them will be drunk even. And Boaz would sleep there at the threshing floor. And so she asked Ruth, go to Boaz. Well, prepare yourself. Take a bath. Change your clothes. Put some perfumes and then sleep by his feet and let's see what happens and so Ruth said I will do that and that night she went to the threshing floor he she found Boaz asleep and she slept by his feet opened the uh, blanket a little bit and Boaz was awake at the time and uh, told her something about what she was doing. Of course, Boaz understood what was happening. Now, for you and me, I'm not recommending that you do that, ladies. Uh, You just don't go to a man and sleep by his feet. In the case of Ruth, it, it was in the context of asking Boaz, will you please marry me? It was a proposal of marriage, actually. So can you imagine today a woman proposing marriage to a man? And the husband thought that, well, you know, he was telling his friend, actually, when I said yes to my wife, and the wife heard about it, and that night, the husband slept outside of the room. Now, of course, it's not good practice for a woman to propose to a man, right? But in this particular case, it was not just a proposal, it was a claim of right. Because under Jewish law, if you are a widow and without a child, you have the right to have a child by the closest relative, in that case the brother. And so he knew that one of the kinsmen of the deceased husband was Boaz. And so she claimed her right under the law, liberate law, that she would be able to propose marriage to him. And Boaz simply responded by saying, you are a virtuous woman. And so he protected her honor. He understood what Ruth was saying. And so he said, I will do what you asked me to do. I will redeem you. But first I will make it right because there is a closer kinsman than I am. If he will reject his right, then I will do it. I will redeem you. I will buy the property of your your deceased husband and I will marry you. And though as part of that, he gave six measures of barley. Well, 
translated in today's uh, uh, volume, it would be about 20 liters of grain or about two weeks supply. And he sent that to Naomi, the mother-in-law. And it was also a way of saying, well, I accept. I understood what is being said to me. I will redeem the property of the deceased husband and will marry Ruth if the closest kinsman would not claim that right. And so Ruth went home to Naomi, who asked what happened, and she narrated what happened actually by the threshing floor. Nothing immoral happened there. Both of them were, in that sense, virtuous. And so she said to Ruth, wait, my daughter. Wait, my daughter. And that is the unusual thing about it. The concept of waiting is there. Now, if you take a look at the concept of waiting, be patient. Perhaps in our prayer life, waiting is the most difficult part of praying. You agree? Uh, in a quick fix now kind of culture, we want to do things immediately. And so when we pray to God, we can live with the answer, no, yes, immediately. But for you to listen to the deafening silence of God is another question altogether. Can I really wait that long? How would I know whether God will answer prayers? And in this particular case, Naomi was asking her daughter, Ruth, be patient. Wait. Now, perhaps the concept of waiting also reminds us that we need to give God room to move his providence into your life and my life. And Naomi understood that quite well. So she told Ruth, she said, well, this man will not rest until he settles the matter. And the following chapter, you would note what happened. And what happened was, Boaz went to the, by the gate, called the, called the city elders to convene. And then also the closest kinsman and asked him, all right, you have the first claim to the property of the deceased husband and to Ruth to become your wife. Will you accept that? And of course, he did not. And so Boaz was free to redeem the property and to marry Ruth. So the concept of the redeemer was there. And so you wait. And God was working his providence into the life of Naomi, into the life of Ruth, into the life of Boaz himself, until eventually the marriage ceremony took place. A son was born, and then Naomi had a son, and she was half full. Now, the concept of half full is simply this, that once she was empty, now she is full. God provided. The contrast of trusting God is dramatic. She was in distress. Now she is happy. She was empty. Now she was provided. And so in this particular case, the waiting was well deserved. Wait. But for you and me today, let's take a look at the concept of waiting because then all of a sudden the text shifted to Hebrews chapter 10. And Hebrews chapter 10 particularly we are told that we are to wait because God will act. The unusual relevance to our lives today is about the promise. Wait my daughter and in Hebrew it simply says be patient. Patient endurance is what you need now. And then you immediately take a look at the twin words, wait until. 
So, waiting is difficult enough. But to talk about waiting until you find a period. In other words, there is a period of consummation, a time when God said, I will answer prayers. I will not conform to your schedule necessarily, but I have my own timetable. There is a season for everything. I will answer. And that until guarantees us that God will answer prayers. In other words, during times of difficulties in your life and my life, during persecution, during times of bitterness and all that, what God is saying simply is that there are times in your life, in your prayer life, when I may be silent, but I guarantee you I am not absent. I will respond to your needs because I am the omniscient, omnipotent God, and I know exactly what you need. God will answer prayer. The book of Ruth is about the kindness of God. And the kindness of God is manifested in the drama itself. Naomi was kind to Ruth. Ruth was kind to Naomi. Boaz was kind to Ruth as she gleaned on the field. When he arrived at the field, he saw Ruth following the gleaners. As you know, the law of the gleaner is still there for the poor. And I'm glad you are taking a look at Island of Hope. But God always has a special place for the poor in his heart. That is why theologically we are told that God is on the side of the poor. God has a bias for the poor for the simple reason that poverty or the poor in the Old Testament or even in today's reality, the poor are victims of injustices. The poor are in many ways the handicaps or the challenged people. Now, if in fact most of the poor people are due to injustices and oppressions of the wealthy and the powerful, then nobody could defend their rights. In that sense, therefore, God as the parents patria of the poor, he is on the side of the poor because nobody else will take their side. And so we have to have compassion for the poor. And I'm glad that your church is responding to that. I'm doubly grateful that you are doing that in one of the islands in my country as well. The kindness of God is interpreted also as the love of God, or in Hebrew, the hesed of God, the stubborn love of God for humanity. God is good. And if you take a look at common grace in the world today, the goodness of God, the kindness of God is made manifest in terms that we oftentimes are ungrateful for. We don't recognize, we don't thank God for that. The air that we breathe, the sun that comes in the morning, and the, and the night coolness that comes to us to, in many ways, uh, refresh us. All the things that are required for us to live as human beings, God provided for that, common grace. And so the kindness of God is made imminent in that, made evident in that, and that common grace is eventually moving into spatial grace when that common grace that attracts us to the kindness of God will eventually lead us to the spatial grace of God. And that is Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, who will provide you forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and the fullness of life that God promised us to enjoy. The kindness of God, therefore, moves into the concept of redemption. The, con the kindness of God always leads to redemption, isn't it? And so Boaz redeemed Ruth and the property of the husband. And in many ways, it is a metaphor or a paradigm for us to consider that God is always in the business of redemption. As a matter of fact, the fact that the Moabite Ruth was chosen by Boaz, one of the chieftains of the tribes in Bethlehem, is an amazing fact in mission itself. Now, we don't know who actually wrote the book of Ruth. 
But she's one of the two books named after a woman. But the life of Ruth itself reminds us of the inclusiveness of the invitation of God for redemption in the world. There was a woman by the name of Tamar who claimed her right under the same law that Ruth claimed. The law of the liberate. And as a result of that, a son was given to them. And that son became the ancestor of Jesus Christ too. Now after Tamar, you find the, the woman Rahab, a prostitute in Jericho. And she also became the wife of apparently a, a Jew. And uh, in that sense, gave them a son. And the son also was an ancestor of Jesus Christ. From from Tamar to Rahab, then to Ruth. And Ruth gave birth to Obed, and then Jesse. And then eventually you have Bathsheba that gave birth to Solomon, and before long you have Jesus Christ at the end of that. So in other words, in the case of God, the accusation that the Bible is not interested in women or that the Bible is gender-oriented, or if you take a look at feminism in the world today that says we reject God the Father, or that we reject Scripture in its plenary authority, or that we are interested in liberation and justice alone, may not be as founded as we think, because in the Bible, God incorporated the most unlikely character in the world also. Women was part of the redemptive process of God, and Ruth was part of that, and Rahab, and Bathsheba. Take a look at their character. They are the ones that you would feel, well, they are not qualified, well, they, but in the grace of God, they were. And you can never be sure how God will act in our life. But what he is really saying is this. I will be your redeemer if you will entrust your life to me. And so here you find that the concept of redemption, even the book of Hebrews says, be patient. Be patient until wait for the coming of the Lord again. Now, how can we be patient in waiting for the Lord? Because he promised he will come again. If you notice that the predicates of this concept of weight was also in the same chapter, very rich indeed. In fact, wait for him because you have already tasted his goodness when you have received his word. You have assurance of faith. You have confidence of access to God. And in that sense, you can wait for the coming of the Lord. Be patient. The blessings, the best is yet to come. Don't quit your Christian life and commitment. Now, we know that when you wait and be patient to preserve your Christian life in the midst of adversity, in the midst of bitterness, you must understand that you cannot do it alone. You need the word of God to encourage you to wait for the coming back of the Lord. In the Philippines, for example, during the Second World War, in October of about 1943, General MacArthur, who was then in command of the forces in the Philippines, was ordered to go to Australia to provide leadership in amassing the, the Allied army toward the invasion of Japan. When he left, the words that he said were, I shall return. And that promise, I shall return, in the midst of war, was the only line, the only hope that the Filipinos and those uh, guerrillas out there and the Americans who were there and the other allied soldiers as well, those promises, I will, I shall return, they held on to that until finally MacArthur came back in late and said, I have returned. If a human person like MacArthur can do that, then can you imagine what God will do to his promises? The Bible simply said, the words I give to you will never return to me void. It will accomplish its purpose. 
When God gave you his salvation, he knew the best for you and me. And whatever promise he had, he said, I will fulfill them. Therefore, wait. In this world, you will have trials and tribulations. Nobody's exempted. Not even Christians are exempted from trials and temptations. As a matter of fact, if you take a look at the book of James, you begin to realize that there are two paradigms in life actually. He said trials are common to everybody. But the response to trials will define who you are in terms of your relationship with Jesus Christ. The first response is this. When you are encountering trials, problems, and pains in life, you can persevere. That is a part of your testings of the faith. The trials test the genuineness of our faith in Jesus Christ. And in that trial, we persevere. And in perseverance, we become mature. And when we go into maturity, we eventually enjoy the crown of life. Or the other alternative to trials and problems is simply this. We are tempted, and then we go into sin, and then we go into death. For you see, testings are from God. Temptations are from Satan. Trials are external. Temptations are internal. But the choices are there. That's what the writer to Hebrews is trying to say. If you will not persevere in the faith that you have, then the end will be death. But if you persevere, then the end is life. In fact, the promise of Scripture is that you will be saved. Some theologians will call that the perseverance of the faith. If you are to persevere, you need the Word of God. But beyond the Word of God, you need also the church of God. We cannot persevere apart from one another. We are one body. If you have problems in life, if you don't like someone in the church, of course, it does not happen here, even your pastor. (laughs) Well, if you follow the biblical paradigm, like Elijah, when he was despondent and was about to quit, he ran toward the mountain of God where he could meet God. When you are under trials and persecutions and when you need to persevere, the solution is not to, not to run away from the church, but precisely to run towards the church where the word of God is heard. The people of God will give you encouragement and love and affection. That is why to persevere and be patient in times of difficulties, you need the church. In other words, be faithful to your church. Don't quit. No church is perfect. If you find one, don't join it. <laughs> because when you join it, it will be imperfect again. <laughs> then you need the Holy Spirit. If you want to persevere and be patient, you need the Holy Spirit of God. The core value of the church is simply this. Without the Holy Spirit, you can do nothing. And the good side about that is the Holy Spirit is God's earnest in you. It's God's wedding ring that eventually, or engagement ring that eventually he will redeem. God will not abandon his church. And the spirit of God is the earnest of God into your own self. The moment you receive Christ, he indwells you. Therefore, you need the spirit of God. Do not grieve the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. Be filled with the spirit. Because when the spirit of God is alive in your life, you can wait. You can persevere because you know that God never lies. He will do what he said he will do. Not only that, you have a cloud of witnesses around you. A couple of days ago, I was uh, visiting with a couple of friends in Winnipeg. And they told me that they celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary. 60 years. Can you be married that long? (laughs) 
I, I'm in a culture where, you know, you change partners every five years to ten years for the most. Sixty years is a long time, isn't it? Because how can you love someone with wrinkles on her faces and all those kind of things? How can you love a man when he can hardly stand up? But the point simply is that when you have 60th anniversary, that is great, isn't it? In other words, it's possible that we can be married for a lifetime, isn't it? And the witnesses around us simply said, you are not the only one with problems. You are not the only one with concerns in your life. You are not the only one with discouragement. There are a lot of other Christians who are probably have suffered much more than you. You are worshiping in a church where there is so much freedom in other parts of the world, in China and other parts of, of uh, Asia, People can hardly come to church without endangering themselves. Pastors are in many ways living lives under threat. And yet they remain faithful. There are witnesses around us that will encourage us. Yes, it is possible to be patient and to persevere. Not because of our capacity and ability as individuals. But because of the spirit of God that sustains us. Because of the people of God that encourages us. Because of the word of God that will never fail us. And not only that, because Jesus Christ is not only our Redeemer, Jesus Christ is also our High Priest. And the Bible said that Jesus Christ, in that sense, remains our High Priest continually. He is still interceding for us. My good friend Stephen all four years ago was telling me, June, if you go into the inner chambers of heaven, you will find the Lord Jesus Christ still interceding. His high priestly prayer for his people, he was still claiming that the ones whom God the Father gave to him, no one will be lost. So persevere because Jesus Christ is praying for you even at this time. He's praying for me. And the only reason that I am in the ministry is not because I am not, I am perfect, but because God and the people of God are praying for me. My brothers and sisters, pray, persevere. And so we take a look at all these issues. Patience is not static. It is not passive. It is dynamic. It is active. While you are waiting, do your Christian duties that you know best, that you know how. When you are in trials or in persecution, do your, what you believe God is asking you to do. That is being dynamic. That's being passive. That is, in fact, proving and demonstrating that your faith is alive, that you trust God completely. During the Boxing Rebellion in China that led to the downfall of uh, democracy eventually, uh, Hudson Taylor was telling his missionaries, I can think, I can pray, but I can trust God. That's what we need to do. To trust God in his faithfulness. Because the God who said wait. Is also the God who will enable us to wait. Outside of that. We cannot do much. And so we ask ourselves the question. Don't give up. Don't be orpha. And don't be the closest kinsman. Be a roof. Be a boaz. Trust Jesus Christ in all that he promised us to do. One of the things that challenged me in my early Christian life about this issue about whether you will die or whether you will live is the fact that I have been raising questions. My discipline in law trained me to ask questions. And the question I asked was this. 
if I got saved by my work, then I can unwork my salvation. But if I was saved by grace, then how can I unwork the grace of God? I cannot save myself. Only God can save me. The other side about that is the promise of Romans chapter 8. When it says this, that you were foreknown, you were predestined, you were called, you were justified, you were glorified. And the interesting thing about this series of verses is this. Why are they in the past tense? They are not future, are they? The moment you receive Christ, you were called, you were justified, you were glorified. In that sense, God is saying, persevere because you will be saved. The drama of redemption is there, my brothers and sisters. Let me tell you a story, and then I will close. You take a look at life. The providence of God is working, isn't it? Why are you here this morning? Why am I here this morning? If you take a look at the last few days, God is working something in your life that you may not even be aware of, but God is working constantly in your life and my life to accomplish his will and purpose for our lives so that we can enjoy the fullness of the blessing that God has promised to us. British Digest reported a story some years ago about a man by the name of Marcel Steinberger, a Hungarian photographer. He was at the time 52 years old. He was working in Manhattan, New York. Every morning at 9.05, he would go to the platform, take a train towards Manhattan. That was his routine. You could almost clock that, and you can count on that. But one morning, he changed his schedule suddenly. Instead of going to Manhattan, he took a train towards Brooklyn because he wanted to visit a friend who was sick. The train was packed that morning. But when he got inside the train, all of a sudden, a man darted out of the train, leaving a seat in front of him, in front of Marshall Bacon. He sat down immediately. He noticed, however, while the train was going on, that the man was reading a Hungarian newspaper. And so he engaged him into a conversation and said, you must be Hungarian. He said, yes. What are you particularly reading? He said, I'm looking at the lost and found section. So what are you looking for? I'm looking for my lost wife. Huh, that's an interesting comment. If you lost your husband or wife, just put it in the newspaper, perhaps artista or whatever. And the man told him a story. My name is Bella Paskil. During the Second World War, I was taken by the German to go to Siberia, captured by the Russian, and I was asked to bury German soldiers. At the end of the Second World War, I walked my way back into Hungary, and I found out that our apartment was already occupied by strangers. My wife was not there, so I asked my neighbors where was my wife, and they said the Germans took her and brought her to Auschwitz, and perhaps she died already. But there was no proof that she actually died, and so she decided to go to America. And in America, she landed in New York, and finally, his main occupation was to look for his lost wife. That's why every morning he would look at the Hungarian newspaper looking for his wife. Perhaps his wife was alive and therefore was also looking for him. Marshall, however, a week before that, attended a Hungarian party. And he met a woman who told a story that he was from Hung she was from Hungary. She was taken by the German, that she was brought to Auschwitz, but that the Americans liberated the camp. And she was taken by the Americans in 1946 under the dislocated people policy of America. She was brought to the United States. And since then, she was looking for her husband. 
And so Marshall told Bella, I said, would you trust me? The next train stop, we will get out. And uh, they did, and she called in, he called the number, and then he said, can you talk to this woman? And all of a sudden, they reconnected, husband and wife, providentially found each other. The New York, the, the Reader's Digest asked this question, was it an accident or was it providential? Was it an accident that, Bilap, that Marcel changed his schedule that morning? Was it an accident that he boarded that flight, that train? Was it an accident that the seat was vacant? Was it an accident that she att he attended the uh, Hungarian party the week before? No, they were not accident. The Reader's Digest simply concluded by saying, no. God was in that train to let two people meet. God is working in your life, isn't it? The drama of providence is there. And we just have to be sensitive to the work of the Spirit. Don't give up. God is working. The great German theologian Robert Rudolf Boltmann, he was one of those uh, quest, historic, quest for the historical Jesus school. I don't agree with his doctrine of Scripture, of course, but in his sermon, he said, the concept of sermon is to create a moment of crisis response. Every sermon is not designed for comfort. Every sermon is designed for response, for conviction to respond. What I'm trying to tell you, my brothers and sisters, is this. However you are, wherever you are, in what situation you are, don't quit on God. Wait, persevere until God in his own time will fulfill the fullness of the promises, it will come, the best is yet to be enjoyed. Amen? Amen. God bless you.